0: Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host, and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP.
1: Hey everybody! Recording live from FYP Studios, East and West! Transmitting across the internet, this is episode, Larry, you forgot to update the thing again, 255. Of Registry Matters. How are you
2: this evening? We're doing awesome. How are you?
1: I'm fan-freaking-tastic, as Will said, and we then had a further discussion. There is no, There are no hairs on frogs, but I'm finer than frog hair.
2: But Okey there are, no, there are no hairs on frogs. I'm glad to hear that.
1: Before uh, we get going, make sure you press that like and subscribe button and do all those things to make sure that the algorithm knows how to find you and send you stuff like this and push it out to other people so that we can grow our audience and be have a big, happy family. Larry, would you do me a favor and tell me what we're going to talk about tonight?
2: Well, I would have done that, but some, my screen is lost, so I'm going to have to do it from memory. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I don't
1: can know, you know you if your imagine? memory can handle it. <laughs> Where I did think your screen I go?
2: Well, I was, had too many open windows, and I couldn't find it. But we're going to be talking about chemo- chemical castration, and we have an expert. And we're going to look at a Republican-sponsored bill in Georgia that makes prostitution a felony. Also, we were planning to take a look at a case from the Mexico Supreme Court regarding grounds for a stop, and that is probably going to be kicked out to another episode. And then we're going to be looking at some articles, if time permits. We have some good news. We have at least three articles we're going to try to cover
1: fantastic oh and so, you know i can't go without just saying that the georgia bill like they're going to talk about pimping which i think is one of the funniest words that exists about pimping so that's on the doc, doc, the docket for tonight and so we are going to have a guest join us and as usual we uh uh we like to protect those in our ranks so they're uh, anywho we have an expert that is uh, a can you, can you t- tell me, cause I'm going to get it wrong. If I say it, Travis, can you, uh, thank you. First of all, thank you for coming and joining us on the program. Can you tell me why we should listen to you? Cause it's fine if Larry says all this gibberish about things, but he's not an expert in pharmacology kind of things. So can you lay that out and tell us why we should listen to you?
3: Well, um, I, uh, have a BS in biochemistry and later went on to earn my doctorate in pharmacology from one of the, uh, top ranked, uh, actually the number one ranked pharmacology school in the country. I've also practiced as a clinical pharmacist and pharmacologist for nearly a decade. With My experience is covering a wide variety of practice settings that includes everything from critical care to ambulatory care to uh, drug design and development. And I'm also a longtime fan of the show and it's an honor to be here
1: fantastic and uh so i mean you said it was like the number one i was number one school i was going to ask you if is it like one of those like you signed your name on the dotted line at the end of the document and then you've got a degree and all that
3: no it wasn't one of those unfortunately but it uh it, it did uh it was a pretty uh long and arduous journey <laughs> to say
1: the I least. i can imagine i mean i mean so I, you know like i got my bachelor's degree and did you go through like the undergrad masters and then the extra time to get the, the, see, to me, in my mind, it's a PhD, but you're telling me it's not that, but it, it is,
3: It's it a farm. Um, uh, same PharmD. thing,
1: just different title.
3: Well, if a farm D, I mean, it's like the difference between a side D and a PhD in psychology, so to speak. So basically okay. I'm, I'm licensed as a clinician, uh, but All right. experience as a researcher
1: can you so, give me the drugs can can you fill that
3: out for me yes i am i'm actually able to, i'm licensed to fill prescriptions wow uh, in some states um like uh north carolina uh, you know i have uh prescriptive author- i could have prescriptive authority so we're, we're doing lots of lots of good things i think
1: all right okay well the reason why so i talked to you a week or so ago and i was like you know what we should have had you on because a couple of weeks ago we talked about this bill in new mexico and larry can you remind me like what's the status of the bill in new mexico is it gone
2: is it just kind of on hold for the time being it's still pending It's the that's house bill 128 and it's still pending the committee chair has not seen fit to schedule it for a hearing so it is waiting it was scheduled and it got uh, delayed by the request of the sponsor and now it's waiting to be scheduled again and you know it could be scheduled at some point i'm guessing but it's not moving at the moment
1: and many of the legislative bodies in the united states they have a, a a fixed time window not they're not year-round legislators so how much time do you have left on yours
2: we are running a 60 day long session this year uh, this is our longest term of 60 days and we have 30 days in the uh, odd number of years and uh and I got it wrong. It's, it's, it's six, yeah, right. It's 60 days this year in an odd number year, and then it's 30 days next year. So it alternates. But since we are about three weeks into it, okay, this bill doesn't. It's building uh, doom if it doesn't get moving real soon. Sure, because sure, sure, it's got it. It's got at least four committees to clear to go through our process. It's not like in many states where they just assign it to one committee. In each in each side of the rotunda here, it's going to get two committees and possibly a third one. If it has significant financial impact, it's going to go to, to the Appropriations and Finance Committee. So this this bill is soon going to be on life support. Okay. Um,
1: all right. Well, then, Travis, so the reason why, again, the reason why you're here is to flesh this out further and uh, to dig into it on – is it effective? And you know, it's just the whole things that neither Larry nor I are remotely qualified to cover. So first of all, like these are words that no human can pronounce, but you probably can. So what is the drug that is used for this uh, chemical castration, which I don't even like saying this word, that phrase, but what is the name of the drug used?
3: Well, there's actually several drugs that can be used. However, I believe in the New Mexico legislation, the drug in particular is medroxyprogesterone acetate. It's also uh, in a depot formulation for depot uh, medroxyprogesterone acetate or DMPA, um, and this is uh, marketed by the brand name Depo Provera, um, which is marketed in the U.S. as a birth control injection.
1: This this isn't just off the wall. This isn't anything used for like morning after stuff, is it? Plan B, anything like that? <laughs>
3: Uh, not necessarily. I mean, this, usually this is actually like a long-term injectable, uh, birth control med.
1: Okay. Okay. Okay.
3: Okay. All right. Um, is it okay? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, is it okay if
1: we just call it depo provera or even depo from this point forward, just because I don't want to try and say Metro. I can't even, that's not possible. I can't say that word.
3: Oh yeah, that's fine. It it goes by, (sighs) uh, it goes by many names, depo, depo provera, uh, MPA also. Uh, not
1: not uh, not Molly, though. Right.
3: Right. Not Molly, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. um, Can you outline to some degree what the efficacy of the drug would be used when used in the application for the PFR kind of subject that we're talking about?
3: So to date, the research has not been great in this area. There are some small studies that suggest efficacy, um, but uh, for most people on the registry, it'd probably be overkill. The best data I found uh, came from a meta-analysis that looked at 29 eligible studies uh, with a treated group and a control group. Uh, the, the The meta-analysis ultimately had uh, 4,939 treated uh, patients as well as uh, 5,448 untreated control patients, uh, while uh, the... Uh, study did find statistical significance in the end sexual uh uh sexual recidivism rates were 10.1 percent in the treated uh offender group versus 13.7 percent in the control group and you know while this was um statistically significant you know with with numbers that close you know i i don't know that there's a lot of uh clinical significance there now there are some smaller studies that have really dramatic results uh, but again, these studies were small populations and, you know, potentially you have some selection bias going on as to who they chose to participate in these. Um, so maybe you more, this would be your more violent subjects who have a very high propensity for paraphilia. And these are probably not, as I said, representative of most PFRs that are running around. Uh, other studies I found have shown reduction of recidivism of less than 5%.
1: And when this is used on a PFR, what is the dosage range? And again, I'm like, I'm thinking of something like a one CC dose. I, I don't even really, like one cubic centimeter. No idea what that actually means, but in comparison to what a normal application would be for this product is, is this going to be a higher dose to make it do what it does? And then I, we're, we're going to talk about side effects after that. So is it a normal, is it a higher dose than normal for this kind of thing?
3: the dose is normal uh, or rather higher. And part of the reason it's higher is the increased frequency. So just to give you an idea, um, in a female patient that's using this drug for contraception, the usual dose per the uh, package insert uh, that the FDA approved is 150 milligrams uh, given intramuscularly every three weeks. Now for a PFR, this is going to be 100 to 500 milligrams So, you know, already, you know, the highest higher end of the range is four times the dose. But this is given weekly as opposed to every uh, every three weeks or sorry, uh, not every as opposed to every three months. Sorry, I misspoke. Um, But anyway, like I say, you know, the free the increased frequency and increased dose means that you are getting uh, higher overall drug exposure relative to normal uses. I mean, there, there are some, uh, oncology uses that would approach this, uh, uh, dose, but in general, it's a pretty hefty dose.
1: And, uh, once a drug has FDA approval, it's, I think it's pretty easy to, to cross pollinate that into using it for something else because it's being used for women in birth control. Does, does, Is there still a regulation hurdle that they have to cross for FDA usage to do this, to, to treat PFRs like this?
3: Well, potentially. Um, But the thing about it is um, there, there was actually a Supreme court case a while back. Larry could probably comment on this, but um, what uh, the, the Supreme court case was actually where people that were on death row were saying that these meds that are being used as an injection, for purposes of uh, execution were not FDA approved for that. And uh, the Supreme court ruled that the uh, FDA actually has enforcement discretion on that. So it doesn't necessarily, you know, it is not illegal to uh, prescribe a medication off label as it's called. Uh, But with that being said, you know, there are potential issues with that. If there aren't very good studies, which, you know, in this case, and I mean, honestly, you know, who's going to sign up for this study? You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, I, can see, uh, you know, I, I can see, uh, males dropping their hands very quickly for this to, uh, say, no, no, not me, you know? So, you know, it, it, bec- it becomes kind of a, a conundrum there. We don't have much data, but part of the reason is, you know, who, 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 who's going to in their right mind volunteer for this? Um, But, uh, you know, we have been doing this. uh, Actually, I read the first uh, uh, time that this was actually used for uh, chemical castration or a drug was used for chemical castration was back in 1944. So it's uh, it's been happening a lot, but it uh, there haven't been any very, really well organized studies with a sufficient number of people to draw the best conclusions.
1: Well, then, dig into that. What does it matter about the sample size? Can't you just grab, a, like, grab somebody by the scruff of their neck off the street and go, "Hey, come here and, and test them," and you'll learn whether it works or not just from a handful of people?
3: Well, when you have a limited sample size, it becomes to de- difficult to determine the effect of it that a drug will have on the larger population. Also, if you're if you have just a few people, you know the the chances of having a lot of diversity in that group of people is less and you know there are instances where due to genetic reasons one subgroup of people will actually have um adverse outcomes to a medication while another group of individuals will be fine and you know that's uh that kind of branches into pharmacogenomics which is an up-and-coming field now uh, but uh, so you know, the more uh, generally, the more people you have, the more internally and externally valid the s- uh, study results will become, and uh, you're able to parse out, you know, just uh, just which uh, differences are statistically significant. Uh, you you generate in what statistics what's actually called power behind the study, which is the ability of statistics to actually detect the difference between the uh, the two groups. And also, you know, two things you really need to calculate in any drug trial are something called uh, number needed to treat in order to get your desired effect and the number you would need to treat in order to have harm done. And, you know, if you, you know, without really large, uh, robust numbers, it's hard to tell what that is. And it's very possible that you could have a number needed to harm as very small whereas the number needed to treat to prevent one recidivistic outcome is actually very large, in which case it would not be very effective.
1: And uh, tell me about, uh, like we, we just talked about the dosage being like significantly higher. Are there side effects for the drug? Even, even I guess for n- n- normal use, there's going to be side effects, but what happens when you four times, eight times the dose, there are probably even more side effects. Let me make it side effects-er.
3: Yes, yes. Uh, that, is, uh, that is actually very true. In fact, in pharmacology, we have an old saying that we use, which is uh, every drug, regardless of the drug, is going to have three effects. One is the effect that you want. The other is the fe- effect that you don't want. And the third is the uh, effect that you don't know about. And so there are many possible side effects with Depo-Provera associated with chemical castration of PFRs. These include things such as hot flashes, cold sweats, cardiovascular disease, migraines, liver disease, osteoporosis, severe anemia are just a few of the more common ones. Uh, and these effects tend to generally mimic a lot of what you see in individuals that are going to clinics suffering from low testosterone. And so, particularly, um, you know, cardiovascular effects. Um, you know, uh, you know, the, the testosterone hormone actually does have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, issues potentially. The other issue with this being a depot injection, it, you know, and its name is Depo Provera. So the drug is injected into the muscle, and a depot is formed, which actually slowly releases the drug into the bloodstream. And the downside to that is if a bad side effect were to happen such as cardiovascular effects, which would include things like high blood pressure, high blood sugar, you know, altered, uh, uh, cholesterol and lipid metabolism, altered glucose metabolism, and even shortness of breath have been reported. So, you know, if, if these things start to happen, potentially, um, you know, you can't really turn these side effects off quickly because it's, it's a long acting injectable formulation. Um, this can also be, you know, particularly some of these that I mentioned, the altered lipid metabolism, the shortness of breath, the high blood pressure, these can be problematic in patients who have type one or type two diabetes or even heart failure. So potentially we could be doing a lot of harm, you know, uh, just in general medications, you know, if, if one size fit all for all treatments and all treatment options, you know, really, I would be out of a job. Um, so, <laughs> so really, uh, you know, I think it is a bit short-sighted of the legislatures to actually consider this without actually considering individual uh, circumstances as well as individual health, an individual's health parameters, which may cause this to maybe do possibly more harm than good.
1: Tell me about, let's just, we'll just say hypothetically that it does work and forget all the side effects, but does, what does it do? Does it eliminate your drive? Does it eliminate interest? Does it give you ed? What does it actually end up doing for the person taking
3: it? Kind of reduce your drive and interest, but also can give you ed as well. So, but
1: yeah. Um, Okay. So, uh, Larry to move that part over when we were just talking about the, uh, the miscellaneous different, uh, uh, outcomes there. One of our longtime listeners asked, what about the medical side effects, especially if PFRs who are already diabetics and they have a degree of degenerative bone disease. Couldn't you, isn't, doesn't this start to move into the area of eighth amendment challenges of being unconstitutional, cruel, unusual punishment kind of thing?
2: my non legal opinion would be yes. I would like to never <laughs> I would like to never have to use this. I would like for the people who are in the legislature, particularly on the conservative side of the aisle, to hold true to the values that they've espoused all through the three years of the global pandemic. And that's that the government doesn't force people to ingest anything into their body or certainly would not inject anything in their body against their will. I would like for them to hold true to that value. But yes, I think there would be a constitutional claim. Hopefully we don't get to that. We're not going to get to that in New Mexico, but this bill is going to make its way around the country. It was not something that was invented here. It's already on the books in Alabama and seven or eight states around the country. And it's going to continue. It'll make its way to your state. And you need to be prepared. And you need to have a plan of how you're going to deal with this When it comes to be a proposal in your legislature.
1: And we frequently talk about this here, Larry, about it. It doesn't even matter whether it works or not, because we know that we drive 20 miles an hour. There will be less casualties on the road. So it just if the population wants this, then we
2: will, as the population will get it. Uh, Possibly. You have to empower them with arguments that are credible, other than recidivism, which is not credible, but you have to empower them with arguments that are credible. And in my mind, the constitutional argument is far more persuasive than the recidivism argument, because if it lowers recidivism by that minuscule amount of points that he was talking about, that's still a worthwhile goal. And you have fallen into their trap when you go down that road because you've actually asked if it, well, if it has, saves, if it saves one. It's worth it. You never concede that point. Listen to the people who defend the Second Amendment. It doesn't matter how many thousands and tens of thousands of carnage we have. They never concede one iota that if it saves one, it's worth it. They have a successful model. Why won't we follow their model rather than going down the recidivism uh, rat hole that doesn't work?
1: Guns are different, Larry. That's Second Amendment stuff.
2: Well, having the stuff put in your body against your will is also a constitutional violation potentially.
1: Very good. Uh, Travis, is there anything else? Uh, we went through that really quick and I thought it would last a little bit longer. If there's anything else that you want to dig into there
3: at all? It, I mean, it's like I say, there's, uh, it, it's a it's a pretty deep topic and depending on which, uh, which drugs are being used for chemical castration you know there can be different issues but potentially you know you have you have the potential to be doing more harm than good with this um uh, and like i say uh you know potentially and i have seen these drugs used for this type of thing but um you know i don't know necessarily that uh, that it is uh dropping uh recidivism rates really all that much and, you know, Larry does make a good point that, you know, the constitu- a constitutional challenge with it um, is probably the way to go. Um, but, you know, potentially, you know, particularly for registrants who, you know, we, we know that people are on the registry for a whole host of reasons. Uh, some of these things include such egregious uh, infractions such as public urination. You know, I, I don't know that necessarily uh something such as chemical castration is really the way to go with this
2: gotcha well in in the case of new mexico that that offense would not be within the zone of there were there were several offenses that would not be within the zone of of enforcement uh it was it was contact offenses there were no non-contact offenses would be that this would be used but my point is bigger than that i don't care about recidivism when it comes to this Because you lose the argument and people around the country are going to fixate on that every time this comes up, because that's what the sponsors will say is it reduces recidivism. And I would have less problem with it if it were a voluntary option where you received, what is it called? uh, What's the term for uh, knowledgeable consent where you informed consent? Informed
3: consent, yes.
2: If you're you're told, look, we've got these potion of drugs. Your crime is going to land you in prison by the sentencing guidelines. It's going to land you in prison for a long period of time in many cases. But in exchange for having less prison time or maybe having a probated sentence, would you be willing to undertake this type of treatment? Then you get to evaluate if you want to have these side effects because you've been informed about what they would be and we went through a whole list of them, I didn't even even understand them all, but we we heard uh, possible side effects. And then you get to make a decision if you'd rather sit in prison eating your delicious cuisine for the next 10 years, or if you'd like to serve a two-year stint in prison and have eight years in community supervision taking this horrible potion. That I would have less problem with.
3: I agree. And I think that uh, potentially this is something where you know, the patient's uh, phys- uh, personal physician, their medical team, their pharmacist would all potentially take, uh, talk to them to see what uh, potential side effects these patients or this uh, uh, person is most at risk for. Um, and depending on uh, things like that, that may also, you know, help make that decision one way or the other. Um, but like you said, a, a voluntary option probably at least makes this a little more palatable i mean even even so and i mean like, like i said there there's so many things that are going on with these studies a lot of times these studies they are picking out the because nobody would volunteer for these on their own you know i mean let's face it i mean who would step up to the plate certainly not not me um but um with that being said um you know if um uh, If it's an option then at least it's a little more palatable i think Um, and depending on the person you may have less likelihood for instance for cardiovascular disease if you're already in pretty good physical shape you're eating right Uh, if you don't have a family history of diabetes you know things like that and i I feel like you know uh, this is only part of the equation because i feel like someone that undergoes this chemical castration you know, they're, you're, you're not just injecting this per- this into someone's arm every week. You're going to have to actually do a, you know, in order to not be committing malpractice, in my opinion, you're going to have to be, uh, you're going to have to basically be monitoring them, monitoring their labs, monitoring a, uh, a lipid panel uh, pretty often just to see where things are. Uh, to make sure, you know, and then, you know, here's the other thing: What happens if you get a patient into this situation, and uh, suddenly they are in a health crisis? If I need to stop this drug in the hospital to uh, prevent this person or from having a heart attack, you know what? What's the, uh, you know, what's the recourse there? That's that's a whole other issue that I think this legislation hasn't really looked at.
2: Certainly not. Um, well, we are really delighted that you shared your wealth of knowledge. And when we're going to talk about medications and stuff, we know who our resource is now.
3: Yeah. Glad to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, it's It's been a, a real honor to work with you guys. And I, I'm more than happy to answer any medication or uh, pharmacology related questions you guys have along the way i'll
1: try to give you more
3: notice next time too
0: all right that sounds awesome
1: perfect thanks so much buddy no problem time.
0: are you a first-time listener of registry matters well then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today just search for registry matters through your favorite podcast app hit the subscribe button and you're off to the races you can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there, too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F Y
2: all right man shall we move on sir yeah we got a feature story uh, number two tonight Uh, i guess that's where we're going next right
1: i believe so uh you, people you wanted to put in something here out of the state of georgia it's senate bill 36 i don't know Uh, why do you want to talk about this tonight you must be uh are you having a senior moment about pfrs does this have anything to do with pfrs
2: uh Well, now, I would say that Senate Bill 36 definitely has to do with P- PFRs, but that doesn't mean I'm not having a senior moment. I'm having more and more of them these days.
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess, at, what are you, 170, where are you at now? I always lose track of
2: your birthday. 178.
1: 178. Okay. Uh, what is the status of Senate Bill 36 as of today?
2: Senate Bill 36 has passed the Georgia Senate, and it has moved over to the Georgia House of Representatives.
1: Uh, and what is the significance of Senate Bill 36? What will it do if it actually makes it into law?
2: Well, it will elevate the offense level of prostitution to a felony, in many instances, which will result in much longer incarceration periods and higher incarceration rates in georgia
1: so let me set this up from an ap article it states georgia state senators want to make it a felony for anyone to pay a prostitute for uh doing the nasty or for anyone to facilitate prostituting by pimping the senate voted 33 to 16 on tuesday to approve senate bill 36 sending it to the house for more debate right now a first offense of pimping or paying for sex legally called pandering is a high and aggravated misdemeanor under Georgia law requiring at least 72 hours of jail. The bill makes both crimes felonies punishable by one to 10 years in prison. A second offense for either is already a felony, but a judge would now be required to sentence someone uh, to at least a year in prison unless prosecutor recommends less. I take it that you're not in favor of this.
2: Uh, I am not. I do not support this. And nor should anyone who claims to be a political conservative and fiscally responsible. They shouldn't support this either.
1: So according to the article, Senator Randy Robertson, a cat. cat, Oh, God. How do you say that county? Cat cat Catal? What is that? C-A-T-A-U-L-A. There's a there's a missing letter in there, Larry.
2: So I've never heard of that county. I would would say I say I would say Catula, but I'm not sure I'm right.
1: There there's an extra letter. Okay, whatever. C-A-T-A-U-L-A. Republican sponsoring the measure argued that making first offenses uh felonies would deter sex trafficking. And opponents, all Democrats, disagreed, arguing there's no proof that long prison uh terms would
2: deter anyone. Well, yes, and the article also stated the measure is one of multiple bills advancing this year in Georgia to impose longer sentences. This is but a real irony because Georgia is currently under solid conservative Republican control, and their only answer to addressing crime is making more offenses felonies, which carry harsher penalties. Felony sentences are served in prisons funded by the state of Georgia versus misdemeanor sentences, which are generally served in county jails uh, if incarceration is imposed for the misdemeanor. So let me get
1: this straight. Uh, Misdemeanor sentences are served in the county and felony are served at the
2: state, why do you even care? Well, because of of whose budget it's gonna impact. And in Georgia and in most states, that's the case to my knowledge. Now it's not the case in Alaska, but Alaska is kind of an outlier. The misdemeanor has to be be the highest crime of conviction for that to be the case. In other words, if you have a felony conviction and you have two misdemeanors underneath it and you get prison time, you're gonna get sent to the Georgia Department of Corrections. But if there's a misdemeanor conviction, and that's all there is. The person would serve their time either on probation or in the county jail. So it doesn't have a direct impact on the on the Georgia state budget. But now, again, I'm going to keep harping on this because I'm trying my best to educate the people who listen to us. If you're going to vote conservative, and many of you do, remind the conservatives that you vote for that they claim to be fiscal responsible. And they they claim they guard every dime of your hard-earned tax dollars. With their life. Remind them that they're increasing the budget for the Department of Corrections. And for every machination, it's not just the Department of Corrections, you've got to get the person to prison first. So you have the investigation, which they will up the importance of these investigative resources where these are felony-level offenses. So you've got more staff hours in law enforcement doing investigations. Then the prosecutions and felony cases are more complicated because The risk are higher. So the prosecutorial services will be additional funding against the state budget. You've got the judges who have to be paid for. Then you've got the public defense resources. You've got all the probationary resources that does the pre-sentence investigation. There's all these things, moving parts, that you're driving up the cost to, all the while proclaiming to be a fiscally responsible person, that you vow to take every dollar of expenditure of public resources very seriously so this is what i'm telling you if you're going to vote the way you're going to vote remind them of what they claim they are this is not a fiscally responsible thing to do but go ahead
1: well i was going to see if we couldn't talk about incarceration rates if you don't mind do you i don't okay i remember that sometime in the past you did a presentation at the narsoc conference where you discussed incarceration rates and uh god, you know, this is where that dude stood up and 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 heckled you, isn't it? Yep, yep. <laughs> so, where does Georgia rank as far as the incarceration rates in the United States?
2: Oh, Georgia ranks very high. According to this resource and we've got a link to it in the show notes. Georgia's near the top in the United States in its rate of incarceration. But compared to other nations, The numbers are quite staggering. On a global scale, the incarceration rate in the United States is far greater than in other countries. To put it into perspective, listen carefully. The population in the United States consists of 5% of all the people on Earth. However, we have 20% of the people that are incarcerated or locked up in the United States. So that tells you something. And data from 2021 shows that 664 people of every 100,000 are incarcerated in the United States. Now we like to claim that we're most like NATO countries like the UK and France. Now compared to NATO countries like the UK, they're at 129, remember that's versus 664. France is at 93, Iceland's at 33 per 100,000. And even more shocking is that 24 states have higher incarceration rates than the national average. And I've listed the top 10 and they were Louisiana at 1,094 per 100,000. Mississippi at one thousand thirty-one, Oklahoma at nine hundred ninety-three per hundred thousand, Georgia at nine hundred sixty-eight, and the lowest in the top ten is Texas at eight hundred forty per hundred
1: thousand. Ah, uh, so as I'm looking through the list in the top ten states, there's something that I find in common. And they do mostly seem to be in the South other than let's see here, Oklahoma, eh, kind of not really South and, uh, Arizona. I wouldn't really call it is in the South, but I wouldn't call that a Southern state and then Wyoming, but most of them are all in the South and come on, Larry, you can't deny that this is not a red versus blue issue. These are, these are team Uh, red States almost entirely.
2: Uh, there you go again. Uh, yes, you are correct. But the reality is that most of these states in the top 10 had high rates of incarceration when they were under Team Blue a few decades ago. And all these states, with the exception possibly of Arizona, were Democratic strongholds. Even Wyoming used to have Democratic governors. But a a few decades ago, these states were all under Team Blue, and they still had high incarceration rates. It's a matter of conservative versus liberal ideology. The states with the lowest rates of incarceration are New Hampshire, Vermont, Minnesota, Rhode Island, Maine, and Massachusetts. In many respects, New Hampshire is a conservative state politically as well. It's just that the population of these states tend to be much better educated and have attitudes that reflect the common good. They recognize that the common good is not achieved by locking so many people up. On the other hand, the states in the Bible Belt are much more likely to be punitive because they believe in the eye for an eye. Uh
1: And I know that you're not really a big fan of making recidivism arguments when you oppose legislation. What do you think that they should argue in Georgia on this
2: one? Well, I'm actually indeed a fan of making the argument of recidivism when it's appropriate. And this may actually be such a situation. (laughs) It would be interesting to know how many customers, I'm focusing on the Johns, the customers of prostitution, are in fact recidivist offenders. I I don't know that information. So, it'd be interesting to know that. beyond that, there are certainly fiscal arguments that can be made. Unfortunately, those arguments often fall on deaf ears when you make them to conservatives because they tend to ignore the fiscal ramifications of their actions, which is some but it's something that they support. And being tough on crime is fundamental to most conservatives. so they they tend to ignore that. But I would like to just remind folks, these are your constituents. When you make these felony charges, it's going to be your constituents calling you up, telling you I'm now a felon. And these are going to be people that, you, that you're that you in the community with that, that you've been willing to acknowledge as donors and supporters. And all of a sudden, you're going to have to treat them as they, as they have cooties because they're a felon now. I'm I'm sorry. Wait, if they have what? Cooties.
1: <laughs> Can you say that when you go talk to your Mr. and Mrs. Politician? Can we talk about people with cooties? <laughs> So, <laughs> um, what do you think the societal cost, does that, uh, is that a, a valid argument to bring?
2: It is, and I do make those arguments myself with limited success. Unfortunately, our citizens in the US are not wired to look at societal costs such as damage, uh, the damage a felony conviction does to a person's lifetime earnings, which in turn impacts the ability to be self-supporting and pay taxes rather than being a tax consumer. Now, those type of arguments should work with conservatives. And remember, I say should, because that's what they espouse. They want people to be self-supporting, and they claim that they want people not to be consumers of tax resources. Well, you've just diminished these people's earnings potential significantly if you give them a felony conviction for this type of behavior. So just think about that, the societal, societal cost. And
1: as I understand it, that this bill has made it to, over to the House, do you think that it can be stopped in the House? I'll, t- I'll take that as a no. <laughs> well,
2: it was. it's certainly a long shot to try to stop it in the Georgia House. The Republicans are in control of the chamber. And if they all vote in lockstep, as they did, and we're going to go through some of that data as we flip back up to the top, is that if they do what they did in the Senate, there's little hope in defeating it on the floor of the House. The best strategy is to kill it in committee, or, which may not be possible because you need to win over some key Republicans to do that. Remember, the Democrat Party can't help you in Georgia much because of the numerical Position right? Although their numbers have improved, but they still can't run the show. They don't have the numbers. But for example, a, a committee chair might be able to give you some delay or sway some members that are in relatively safe Republican seats that even though they would, they tend to want to be tough on crime, that you can afford to vote against this and we can table this thing or, or let it die in some other fashion. But as we move back up to the top, and thanks, Stefan, for doing the research you did, we have the vote by party affiliation. And it's there. I guess you're going to put this in the show notes, right, Andy? It's on the screen now, too. Yes. So so, uh, uh, not a single Republican voted no. Every Democrat except two voted no. Now, of course— the Democrats were in such a insignificant uh, uh, number in the Georgia Senate. It doesn't make any difference, but they did vote no. And a couple of Democrats voted yes. So they did not vote in unison. There was a Democrat uh, voted yes. Uh, and uh, uh, two Democrats looks like voted yes. And uh, otherwise, this is this is a Republican thing that's happening in Georgia. I'm sorry to break your heart, folks, but you're going to have to win over some Republicans if you're going to kill this. And you're going to have to convince them that this is not good public policy to make felons out of people who are buying the services of a prostitute. You can call it anything you want to. You can call it human trafficking. You can call it all the things you want to call it. But we're talking about prostitution here.
1: And would it take a good group of people doing advocacy work to get this to stop? And if that's the case, then what's the level of advocacy in Georgia?
2: uh as i understand it the georgia advocacy team is uh sitting in the georgia department of corrections right now
1: <laughs> i don't know that that's entirely true but uh, so what do you think the odds are with uh, this being pushed back
2: well i would be i would be delighted to try to work with people remember i don't know the nuances of how everything works in georgia but there's a lot of similarity they run a 40 day session as i understand it so that the time is always critical And getting things moving, I think they have a crossover date. If you can keep something from crossing over, that diminishes the chances of it getting to the finish line. Now you can take something that has crossed over and you can add this as an amendment. So just because something hasn't crossed over doesn't mean it's dead. But it diminishes its chances dramatically. But the people are going to have to break out of their shell and make different arguments than what they are comfortable making. And the arguments that they're going to make they're going to have to make much more politely uh, than what I've done so far on the show. You would not want to be as condescending as I have been. <laughs> but you need, you need to be clear to these people. We voted for you because you promised to be the guardian of the purse. We already have a very high incarceration rate in our state. We're doing, we're doing very poorly on recidivism of people because Georgia offers very little in the way of reintegration help. They give them $25 and I think uh, some kind of clothing when they release them from prison. That uh, $25 has been the amount for about 50 years now. And uh, we, we're we not doing very well. And we can't afford to keep making more and more felonies. And then you go through those societal costs. You go through the fiscal costs. You go through all the things that are going to be impacted by this in terms of all the moving parts. And you try to get them to hold true to their fiscal conservatism. And if they don't, then you remember that at the polls, You remember that at the polls. You don't give them a pass. You do like Larry does. You hold your team responsible for when your team is not doing what you want. And you let your team know continually, you're disappointing me. I do that all the time with my team. But my team satisfies me more often than they disappoint me. But I have disappointments with my team as well and i let them know and i work on getting them to moderate their views where I disagree. And one of them is on the statute of limitations. I've made an amazing amount of progress over the last few years and getting them to might be so excited about changing statute of limitations. We've got bills on the statute of limitations pending this legislature. Our odds are getting better and better that we're going to kill them again this year. But but I, I, I trust that people if you've Don't take what I'm saying offending because I'm not intending. This is intended to be informative. This is a real-time moving example of what's happening, and how the people that claim to be one way politically. We just gave two examples. We gave it about the castration bill, the chemical castration. I'm using that argument. If we have a floor hearing, and not a floor hearing, but if we have a committee hearing, if this thing manages to get heard, I'm going in and I'm going to use that as an argument. I'm going to say. My Republican friends, I would like you to vote consistent with what you preached for the last three years about the big bad government forcing people to put things into their bodies. I would like you to hold true to that view today. You've got the opportunity to do it. That's what I will actually say.
1: All right. Um, We are are at a point where we can talk about some articles, Larry. Are you prepared for, for this little section?
2: I am. We've got three of them.
1: We do. The first one would be at a, uh, another one from the AP news and it's uh, California voters could decide whether to reinstate voting rights to people in prison on felony convictions under a newly proposed constitutional amendment. If the voters approve, California would join Maine, Vermont, as well as the district of Columbia as the only States where felons never lose their right to vote, even while they're in prison. According to the national conference of state Legislatures, legislatures. The California bill was introduced Monday by Assemblymember Isaac Bryan. It proposes an amendment to the state constitution.
2: Well, yes, it does. And it's great because Bryan's proposal doesn't include any exemptions based on the crime committed, which means that PFRs, as it stands before the amendment gets butchered, it stands right now that it would apply to everyone.
1: And you have another article from Minnesota, what are they proposing?
2: Well, it's not quite as bold. Uh, You wouldn't expect it because uh, California is a bastion of liberal pointy-headed do-gooders. But the the Minnesota bill is proposing to allow people to vote upon their release from prison while they're still on supervision. And that's a positive step because that's not permitted in my state, and we're supposed to be somewhat progressive. Well, we haven't been able to, to achieve that here, although we've tried. We haven't been able to achieve that here. We get a lot of pushback from the conservatives and even some conservative Democrats say, well, you know, the people need to pay their debt in full and before they can fully be restored. And I said, great, but then let's fully restore them to everything, including extinguishing the registry obligation. Of course that goes over like a a lead balloon, but, (laughs) but, but yes, we have not been able to achieve that here. So yes, if Minnesota does restore the right upon, discharge from prison on parole or probation or whatever, that would be a good thing.
1: Um, Okay then. And then another article that you plopped in here tonight is where a proposed bill would pay incarcerated workers minimum wage. A Washington state lawmaker who has spent time in prison wants the state to pay incarcerated workers minimum wage for doing their jobs. State Representative Tara Simmons, a Democrat from Bremerton, is sponsoring House Bill 1024, called the Real Labor Real Wages Act to raise the wages to the state minimum of $15.74 per hour, the Seattle Times reported. These again, Larry, this is about as left of a state as you could possibly go. And uh, where do you think the money will come from to pay all of these wages? All the liberals going to do, they're going to tax all of the uh, rich billionaires like the Bill Gateses and the uh, Jeff Bezoses out there, aren't they?
2: Yep, yep. Tax and, sp- t- tax and spend, tax and spend. Uh, Representative Simmons actually served 30 months in prison for a low-level drug and theft crimes about a decade ago, at least according to this article, and said when she was in prison, she was forced to work the graveyard shifts for less than 42 cents an hour. Uh, what's Come on, man. If,
1: if She should have thought about that before she got herself <laughs> locked up, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, she's being punished, right? Uh, That's right. According to, she should have thought about that. According to Simmons, quote, no one should be coerced into providing their labor, and Washington should not profit from involuntary servitude, end of quote. Do any states pay that much? I'm thinking the answer has got to be no. Uh, my state does not, but according to the article, Colorado is the only state that pays minimum wage for incarcerated labor. Similar legislation has been introduced this year in New York and has failed previously in Arizona, 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 <laughs> California, Maryland, Mississippi, Nevada, Texas, and Virginia. Now, Maryland is pure as the wind driven snow. I've heard I can't this. believe I can't believe that they would have voted no in Maryland. But it's failed. In a number of states that it's been tried,
1: and do you think that it will pass in this fine state of Washington?
2: Ah, uh, probably not. Uh, uh, according to the article, there will be a significant fiscal impact to the state's budget. At the last fiscal year ended in June, more than sixteen hundred incarcerated people worked two hundred eighteen thousand three hundred thirty-five hours in Washington correctional industries. The program contributed $46.2 million to Washington State's economy. But if passed, this bill would cost $97.5 million annually.
1: I got to think, Larry, that if something like this were to make it, that they would then have you essentially paying for your prison sentence. You're not going to just take $15 bucks an hour and drop it in the bank. You're going to end up paying room and board. So you're going to end up with coming like you're going to bring home I don't know, a dollar an hour, some number like that, once you pay for your room and board.
2: Don't you think? Well, I would hope that doesn't become the case. I would hope that this would be a part of any re-entry fund that would be used for, I would be very supportive of requiring that the inmates save the bulk of it. And I don't have the formula to tip my tongue, but they certainly need the article references, how much commissary canteen stuff cost, and particular personal items. But... I would hope that if you're paying a minimum wage, that they're actually building up for their release and reintegration. And that would be my argument I would make. I would say, hey, yes, we are paying them, but we're not going to need to put them in halfway houses. They're gonna be able to go transition directly from incarceration to housing they've provided because they have saved their money Uh, They did it kind of involuntarily, but they've saved their earnings and they're going to use that for their transition. That would be one of my arguments and hopefully it would resonate with some conservatives because, you know, they don't like to spend money on reintegration as evidenced by how little of it that they do.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, And that's 97 million bucks is, is definitely a large chunk of change. So I was looking at the, uh, the motive, trying to figure out what the motivation would be, and she said that the bill was partly inspired by a jury awarding $17 million to immigrants held in a Tacoma detention center who earned a dollar a day.
2: Well, that's a good inspiration to do that. She's probably looking at, uh, her argument would be logically that we can't afford to have this because that immigration center would not have the... T- inmate population that the state prison system has statewide. So her argument would logically be that we can't afford the consequences of such a lawsuit if we would to have to pay back pay going back if there would be a class action. Now I've not talked to the representative, so I have no idea, but that would be one of the arguments I would make if I were trying to sway people that were hesitant. You know, this is the right thing to do because if we do this ourselves, then we don't have to deal with some uh, enterprising law firm that comes in here from out of state and they have unlimited resources, and they take us to the task over the fact that we haven't been paying our prisoners.
1: Do you think that this is good policy to pay workers in prisons?
2: I do, I'm not sure about the amount. I would need to see more data on that, but absolutely, I want prisons to look as much like being on the street as possible. Right. And on the street, you do have a job, you do receive a paycheck, I would like for this money to be subject to social security taxes and all the things that people do uh, in normal life. Because when you're in prison, I don't want you to forget about normal life because what 90% plus people are going to come out of prison someday. So I want you acting and being familiar with reporting to a job, being on time, being uh, paid, saving money, doing the things that a responsible citizen does. So I think it is good public policy, but I don't know uh, about the amount. I'd have to see some studies i'd I'd have to i'd have to thoroughly evaluate how much this is going to cost i mean new mexico is relatively a poor state but if we're talking about adding something let's cut it down to one-fifth let's say we're one-fifth the size of washington we're talking about spending 20 million dollars a year for prison salaries that's a significant amount of money and give you an example i'm working on a, a, a bill this year it's outside the pfr uh, zone, but you've seen what I'm working on to get people who are on GA disability—that's General Assistance for the Disabled. It's this is a very small state-funded program. We spend about six million dollars a year on it. I want to double that to twelve million dollars a year, basically giving them double the money because they haven't had a raise for 25 years. That amount hasn't been increased, which is 245 dollars a month. I'm going to have all sorts of pushback to find six million new dollars to fund people who have disabilities. And who, if they get on federal benefits, are going to reimburse the state for the money that they were that they received while while receiving state benefits? If you think I can go in and get this legislature to appropriate twenty million dollars to pay inmates, you've been smoking some weird <laughs> wacky weed. I couldn't do it.
1: And I isn't this this is almost like funding education though? It's something that you have to wait a generation almost to get a payback. This is similar. If you help get the people locked up, if you're treating them as if they were on the street where they have normal financial responsibilities of paying their electric bill and paying their rent and so forth and going to work every day and showing up, being respectful for your job and all that. Doesn't that then pay the dividend of that person not coming back next go around when the revolving door comes back around? So wouldn't this... Like I I what do you guys pay 40,000 bucks a year per person to be locked up I'm getting, you know somewhere in that ballpark is what the number is. So isn't that a return on investment?
2: It is, but it's in the future and right now we're dealing with the present which I need 20 million dollars to pay the salaries <laughs> and I've got all the things that the state's fund. So now we're washing energy revenue so we have I'll go down the list of things that are competing for big bucks. The State Department of Public Safety, which is state police, law enforcement, they need a huge increase because they can't keep officers on the street. The Department of Corrections, they say that they're they're severely understaffed. They need a huge increase. The Every college and university in the state university system in New Mexico, they're saying the same thing. We need money. The state funds public education here, K through 12, and and pre-K for that matter. They're saying they need a whole bunch of money and you've got all these things that the state does where they're saying they need more money need more money it's very difficult to say and i'll tell you what i'm gonna do <laughs> in addition to all those things i'm gonna find a way to pay our prisoners 20 million dollars so that they have jobs and they have money to buy a canteen and whatnot that just doesn't sell well but it's going to cut recidivism well how do you know that, Larry? Well, we just know it intuitively. What kind of data do you have? Well, I don't really have any. So it's it's liberal lefty thinking, right? That we're going to we're gonna pay these people big money to the detriment of all these other legitimate needs. And somehow or another, they're going to use it wisely and they're not going to come back to prison. Yeah. Go that and sell that to my constituents, Larry. Tell me what my constituents – what am I going to tell my constituents when I tell them I can't fund all these critical things and I'm going to give it to prisoners?
1: Thank you for putting out that excitement Larry. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> so um anything oh. else I have I just I just plopped something in there that I'm going to read from one of our patrons if you ha- uh, if you don't have anything else I will read a comment provided by one. Can we sure. go there? Cool. Yes. So th- this is Eugene and he commented uh just a few days ago it says on episode 247 You answered my concern about church attendance. I found an article that suggests that many states can and do limit church attendance in Virginia. The process to get permission is degrading and lengthy. It applies to all PFRs on probation. I believe perhaps some POs disregard the rules or law. I do live in a rural area and the minister must drive to the PO PO's office, which is far away. I met with the minister and PO there. I had to tell her what my charges were and the details of what I did. Uh, which was uncomfortable for me and the minister. They must do a background investigation with the minister. We all had to sign a contract form, which tells the minister the general nature of my crime and what rules we must follow. My complete list of restrictions, signed by me and the PO, does not mention church attendance. I was invited by a neighbor to attend their weekly dinners on church property, and I decided to check with my PO. I have no, uh, I have no questions. I just wanted you to know. So, just wanted to share that.
2: Well, I think you misspoke there. It says the minister must under, undergo a background investigation. Now, that's funny.
1: I, I, I must have just misread it, but yeah, that's... Uh, yeah,
2: so, <gasps> so that so.
1: person has to go get uh, <laughs> get, get background checked also? Uh, now, can you admit that that's funny? That, that's ridiculous. That's not funny. <laughs> So, you've Um, got this person who is in charge of leading a congregation and all that stuff, and now this person must have a background check so that you can attend their church?
2: Well, theoretically, I suppose you could be a perv yourself as a minister. I suppose.
1: I'm Uh, sorry. What what kind of person is the minister, Larry? Potentially a perv. All right. All right. Transcriptionist. There you go. (laughs) I didn't expect you uh, to throw that word out there, Larry.
2: (laughs) But- But uh, now, I've never said that the states don't limit church attendance. They do it in a number of ways. I've emphatically said that I believe it's unconstitutional. I believe that there is absolutely no basis for the government. We have a separation of church and state. I believe there's no basis for government to interfere with that relationship. It's totally up to the church who they want worshiping among them. But where we have the problem, it breaks down, is we have very few churches who want to make that challenge because the church has better standing than you do as the pfr no jury gives a crap about you as the pfr but if the church were to say let me tell you something big bad government what we do and who we have in uh, here worshiping is totally our business and the day you set foot in here is the day that we will throw your ass off of our property we will not tolerate any intrusion." And if you come back again, we'll seek an injunction from the court to prohibit your officers from coming in here and interfering. We have a constitution protecting us, and what goes on here is our business. Now, there's that's not an absolute. What goes on in there is not their business in all situations. If you were having rituals where you were torturing people, that would be illegal and unlawful, and the church wouldn't have immunity. <laughs> so I'm not trying to be silly. But in terms of who worships, that's entirely up to the church. But the church is actually, yes, because it's easier for them to say, well, you know, we could, we would be welcoming of you, but we don't want you to get in trouble. Well, would you like to do a court challenge? No, we don't want to do a court challenge. The churches are being somewhat disingenuous about this. But if we had a church and we had the right plaintiff, I think that we could challenge this. Now, having said that, when it comes to people under supervision, you have somewhat less freedoms. And it's more likely that, that, that a restriction imposed upon you, particularly if it was uniquely tailored to your offense, withstand constitutional scrutiny. But they can't tell you not to go to church, even if you're under supervision. But they possibly could tell you not to go to a certain church.
1: Very good, sir. Is there anything else on the show that you wanted to cover and talk about before we uh, skedaddle?
2: Nope. I'm looking forward to next week, and we're going to go back to that New Mexico Supreme Court case about uh, whether a person's been seized or not and uh, whether there's articulable probable cause if we don't have any big breaking news because it is fun. I did, I did quite a bit of work on it in prep for tonight, but we clearly didn't have time.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And yeah, we definitely didn't. I'm going to try and snag some clips from that debate that I talked about last week with uh, Miss Horowitz on uh, that Intelligence Squared. I hope I don't violate any copyright laws by grabbing them, but I want to capture some of the ridiculous things that dude said and uh, bring them to you to get, your, to get your opinion of them. Sound
2: good? The worst I could do is lock you up.
1: Fair enough. And I've already done that, so I guess I could do it again. Uh, but please, if you want to find all the show notes, all the links everywhere you need to go over at registrymatters.co. And you can find all the phone numbers and the links to go to Patreon and all those other things, Discord server links, YouTube links, everything that you need will be presented to you over there at registrymatters.co. And if you want to find the transcript, go to fypeducation.org. And if nothing else, sir, um I will talk to you in a handful of days. Uh, good night Take care. Bye bye.
0: You've been listening to FYP.